This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only what? On POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the polyoptics of presidential campaigning. Jason Recker, former special assistant to the president, trip director for George W. Bush, and a man who knows more about what works, what doesn't, and what's next in the world of presidential campaigning. Then Jeff Berman, the digital guru of the NFL, live from Indianapolis in Super Bowl 46. His political career in Washington prepared him for the fantasy job we all wish we had right about now. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here on Super Bowl weekend, pal. It's great to be with you, Adam. Uh, we're we're sort of leaving phase one of the primary and caucus seasons, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida. And it's interesting that when Governor Romney and Speaker Gingrich both got on stage to give their uh, their remarks after the votes were tallied in Florida, you saw more polyoptics at work. A, a, a professionally produced event site for Mitt Romney. Uh, the signage uh, very clear, d- d- designed for the f- directly for the tight shot. And Newt Gingrich with sort of custom-made signage to get his message across visually 46 states to go. The thought that he would take it all the way to the convention. And that was done visually in addition to his, his remarks. Yeah, it's a small but very important and growing uh, group of people who follow polyoptics here here on POTUS, and I have to tell you, uh, I think the campaigns have a few folks who've been listening as we've been talking about this, because there's sure evidence that they are taking this visual communication to heart. But listen, on a week where Donald Trump can reinsinuate himself into the campaign uh coverage with a rope-a-dope endorsement of Mitt Romney, I'm really excited that our first guest is someone who could take us on the trail, somebody who has been there both inside the White House and on the 08 campaign trail with Sarah Palin and John McCain. Uh, Our first guest, Josh, former special assistant to the President of the United States, trip director, advanced man extraordinaire, Jason Recker, someone from whom I continue to learn a great deal about polyoptics. Jason, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to be on. Sorry it took me so long to get on, but we have very We've been hounding you, haven't we? I've know. been trying to get you on the show for over a year now. I've been hiding out in a bar in Bourbon Street, but you finally found me. So. Josh King and I uh, love to talk to former trip directors and folks who have led presidential missions all over the world. Um, and really the job, and people need to understand this, uh, comes down to this. The President of the United States is in the hands of his aides when he is traveling, and never more so than the role that Jason played. Uh, Every time the president boards the aircraft and sets out, there's one man he turns to for guidance on where he's going, what he's doing, what he's heading into, and when the audibles get called, both by someone like Jason Recker or by the president or the chief of staff, it comes down to Jason and the folks in his role to help continue to keep the traveling roadshow Uh, moving forward 
and adroit, ready to make a change at a moment's notice, depending on what's going on in the world. Is that fair, Jason? Well, <laughs> I, I won't be the one to say uh, it's fair, but certainly a lot of the uh, aspects you talked of are, are things that you know go into the role of, of trip director, and it's really, I, I always describe it as a unique position where you're always needing to look uh, ahead of you and behind you at what you you know left behind and the feeling of people at, in the country or the state or the city that you visited and make sure that everything is, is good there and you left good feelings and looking forward as to what your next 10 steps are going to be, your next 10 hours are going to be, and your next 10 months are going to be. Well, your, your time in the Bush administration, your political work over the last 10 years uh, has been very robust. I mean, you were a part and a leader of the Bush team uh, in the White House and on the campaign pain trail in 2004 for the president's re-election. And Josh King, of course, uh, was a part of President Clinton's original uh, campaign team and was part of this team that was in the position of running for re-election while the president was an incumbent. So you both share something there. But based on what's going on today, I think we have a great opportunity, Josh, to talk to Jason about the ins and outs of campaigning for the presidency while you are still president. I mean, that's right. And curious about Jason's view, but uh, certainly there are enormous advantages in being the incumbent. And Barack Obama will experience that this summer. He has Air Force One at his beck and call. He has Secret Service protection round the clock. Mitt Romney is just getting it now. So, Jason, what's it like uh, to sort of use the apparatus of government recognizing there are limitations to that when you're running a re-election flight? I think it's huge pluses and minuses. I mean, the office of the presidency is the, I think, most powerful symbol to so many people across the world and and in our country. You know, having an airport rally with 15,000 people in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and watching that blue and white 747 taxi into view as the President of the United States lands and disembarks playing hail to the chief, you really can't produce better optics than that because it's real. But it there's not a lot of kids of, who there's not a lot of kids who want to get out of classroom to see a Miami Air 727. Exactly. I mean that's it. when I was 8 years old my father was in the Air National Guard in New Hampshire and President Bush 41 used to take that same plane uh, up to Kenny Bunkport, and I remember standing there and telling my dad I was going to ride on that plane someday, and little did I imagine, you know, 15 years later that I actually would. But, you know, the plane and the motorcade and the, the entourage and the whole uh, trappings of the office, um, the bubble, if you will, bring so many uh, powerful advantages in large-scale events, but it also brings with it, I think, some extreme disadvantages in that um, what I've found over the last four years and, and really is increasing is that people really want to meet and interact and, and have personal conversations with the people that they're they're potentially voting for. And people are looking for some of that authenticity and, and reality in, in candidates. And it's very difficult. The Secret Service, I think, are the best in the world at what they do, but their number one job is protecting the president, not getting him reelected or scoring him political points. You really have to walk a fine line to navigate to figure out if you're going to be able to stop at a diner, if you're going to be able to stop at a school, if there's a rally on the side of the street with some you know girl and Boy Scouts holding signs. How do you manipulate that or stop at a lemonade stand uh, you know, on your way back from a fundraiser and still be able to interact with those kids or those voters um, you know, while still inside the bubble. Just this week, uh, watching the campaign trail, uh, the candidates leaving uh, Florida out into Minnesota and on to Nevada. Mitt Romney, as we just said, Jason, now uh, toting a Secret Service detail, working what what we know as a rope line, and someone from about three bodies deep glitters him. And you can just imagine how a, a new campaign would get amped up 
with a circumstance like that and how that changes that exact retail scenario you're talking about growing up where you grew up in New Hampshire and even in Florida where you could get a lot closer. Things change about this point, don't they? Yeah, I think they absolutely do. I think to Mitt Romney's credit, he really you know, showed his, his uh, true colors at that moment. And without anybody uh, whispering in his ear or writing down for him what to say, he was able to roll off and say the Ken Confetti was a congratulatory note uh, after the victory in Florida. So I thought that was brilliant uh, stagecraft on, on his own personal part. But it is, it's very difficult. And I think that, you know, the more and more that you have these, these you know, political terrorists, if you want to call them, the glitterati or whoever they be, that show up and try to the occupiers disrupt these events, I think you're going to see, and I hope that you're going to see more and more people actually, you know, going to places where politicians aren't expected, whether it's dropping by a high school football game, dropping by, a, you know, a diner or something like that, where you're not announced, you're not expected, and you're actually able to get out of your car and go in and interact with real people who may be for you, they may be against you, they may be undecided. And I think that to avoid things like that, we need to see more and more retail politics happen uh, in this cycle. Jason has his own uh, political consulting firm called North Star Strategies, and he also played a very vital role in the 2008 campaign. All of that is something we're going to get to as we continue here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124. But I want to set the stage for a second. When I joined the the Bush administration, um, one of the most important meetings that I would attend uh, on a daily basis was uh, essentially a deputies meeting. And Jason um, was often there, and when he was, he was essentially the the leader of this meeting because the entire discussion would 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 take place, and Jason would hear a lot of what uh, expertise was brought to bear or thoughts on the matter. But he was one of the only people who had a three hundred and sixty degree view of what this exercise, the planning of a presidential event would actually become in the field when it went live because it was his responsibility. And and so, Jason, I want you to help people understand when we talk about events that in the business we call OTRs or off-the-record stops, yeah. the kinds of things that really resonate at, at, at a real level with Americans uh, when they get a chance to be with, whether it's the president of the United States or a candidate running for president, these things for security purposes uh, and for a host of other reasons that maybe you could detail happen in real time, on the fly, uh, based on the best judgment and advance work of the people uh, on that team. And you really made an art and a science out of doing that, and it is both. And Josh has talked about his experiences. But help us understand, as we look at the 2012 campaign, people are really trying to come into their own and, and, and attain that kind of event and that kind of very real, uh, let's stop the lemonade stand, let's get out there and actually touch people, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think it's been fascinating for me to, and I'm sure you know Josh and you, Adam, to watch how the rules of the game have changed with the introduction of Twitter and YouTube. The 24-hour news cycle is almost you know, the 24-second news cycle. I was reading a reporter Twitter feed, and during the South Carolina primary, one of the candidates stopped by a barbecue restaurant. It was announced to the press, and the press were all with him, and his staff was there, and he went in, and he had some of his supporters there, and he went to order barbecue, and one of the reporters asked, you know, what's your favorite kind of barbecue? And an aide to that candidate just kind of jumped down their throat and said, it's an OTR, you can't ask questions. And I'm watching this saying, come on, guys, you got to be kidding me. I mean, every camera, every uh, cell phone these days has video and photo options. You can um, automatically upload it to Twitter and Facebook, and that's how things, you know, go viral. So to me, 
the definition of an OTR has almost changed dramatically from what it used to be and, and where it is. And I think, you know, in the old days, you were able to plan an OTR where the Secret Service or somebody would tell you, uh, you know, we're 10 miles out from the fundraiser at the eight-mile mark. There is a school with 100 kids outside that have a Welcome President Bush banner. You know, would you like to stop or would you not like to stop? And we were able to plan things a little bit better. And, not, you know, and, and now you have to be very, very cautious that if you plan something like that, in advance, you're not going to get glittered or sandbagged or something like that when you stop there. So I think the element of true OTR, true surprise, uh, is something that, that, you know, is yet to be mastered by either side this time around. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt as they as they go on. Interestingly, too, I mean, moving from the the mechanics and the logistics to what kind of candidate you actually have to work with, um, and I wrote about this as the for the companion for last week's show, which is Newt Gingrich, Ron Paul, are not people who relish the type of an opportunity from an OTR. They don't want to surprise people. They don't want to uh, uh, create a, a wonderful a visual image from dropping in on a high school football practice. These guys have difficulty in that kind of a milieu. I'd say Rick Santorum is better at it. Mitt Romney is better at it. But neither of them seem to really love to do it either. On the Democratic side, Barack Obama does not also doesn't like to do it. You have to go back, I think, to George W. Bush and Bill Clinton uh, to look at two politicians who said, have a great chance to just mix it up with some folks, even though if the, even though there may not be a lot of votes to be won here. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I I, I think Clinton and, and Bush were both both masters of it. And uh, I think too, for, for if I was advising a campaign, you need to look at your surrogates as well. You know, uh, there's some really dynamic spouses bo- on both sides of the aisle, from Mrs. Obama to you know the, the folks on the Republican side that really can help fill in in some of these situations. If the, if the candidate or the politician is somebody who is, you know, awkward at best in, in retail politics, some of these spouses and even some of their children really can, can take a key role in engaging with some of those voters and, and serving as somebody who can introduce these voters to the candidate and, and kind of, you know, hear their stories a little bit more. I uh, observed Mrs. Huntsman a lot on the trail, and I, I thought she was uh, an incredibly, uh, you know, real and dynamic person that was able to, to connect with people very, very well in those sorts of settings. Jason, one of the things that that strikes me in in the current campaign environment is uh, that you just don't have as much of a trust situation, I would guess, between the candidates and their advance teams. They just don't have the kind of experience um, going off script. Talk to us for a second about what it's like to build that kind of organization. And for a lot of folks, they just don't understand that some of the most important people who play a role are sometimes doing so in a volunteer uh, capacity versus being a full-time paid staff member. So you've got some, some good talent, but it takes some serious organization and management to build confidence with the candidate that we can execute the plan. Yeah, I think that that even more in 2012, and we saw it a lot in in 2008, where the Obama campaign really mastered this, is that the events matter uh, more so than they, I think, ever have in the past. You know, you have three or four events a day, um, and you really need to look at the optics and, and what goes into them. And so it really falls on, you know, a junior bird advance man to make sure that he's doing the, the right job and setting the right tone. And I think that 
that in, in my experience, it really comes from the, the candidate down, that if the candidate takes time to interact with, you know, the, the low men on the totem pole and builds that trust and builds that confidence in them, they will then in return, you know, have a high standard that they put on events, and they'll feel passionate about it, and their heart will be in it, as opposed to something that they're doing for, for the glory or for a paycheck. So to me, that's something that is really important when building these teams, is you look for people who, um, you know, have have a strong uh, head on their shoulders, but people that are going to be loyal, as opposed to people who are the best in the business. When you when you think about uh, very important events, things that you have done, uh, one of the things that pops to my mind was something I got a chance to work with you on. It was the North American Leaders Summit. It was down in New Orleans, which is a place that you call home, a place that you spent a great deal of time uh, around Katrina, and that may surprise people. What the Bush administration was engaged in New Orleans around Katrina, uh, they were in the personage, uh, among others, uh, of Jason Recker. Um, but I, I want to ask you, when you lead an event like that, you are representing the President of the United States. Um, how is it that you can continue to build all of the other events that you do week in and week out? Because these things are all stacked up. They're all concurrently being done. When you're out there uh, creating an event like a leader summit for the heads of state of North American countries in a place like New Orleans, optics is is really at the heart of it, isn't it? I, I think it is. And I think that, you know, optics is the uh, you know, I, I imagine one of the key reasons that New Orleans was selected to show the city's rebirth and to show, highlight a really American city in the, in the years, uh, you know, following Katrina. So it would be, you know, a waste of time and a waste of money to come all the way here and ask, you know, the, the President of Mexico and Prime Minister of Canada to come all the way here and, and not engage in, in some things that are really community-based and that have positive optics but also leave a positive feel, you know, with the community as, as you leave. And that was something I was kind of talking about earlier in the role of trip director. You need to look ahead and you need to look behind. If we come all the way to a place like New Orleans and we don't experience any of the local music or the local culture or the local food, which is really the lifeblood of the city, then there's really no, no point in coming here. So it, it's really something you have to take into consideration, especially when you're hosting a large-scale event or, or a summit or a convention. Really, uh, it, it's a waste to bring the, the, the star, the key player, the, the principal uh, to these places, not experience some of the local fare and meet some of the local people. It's, just a, it's a waste, I think, on, on both sides. Uh, it enriches the, the leaders, and it also enriches and highlights the community. Something that Josh King and I, and Josh, you speak up here, that we love to talk about is uh, the, the 2008 campaign. It was a, an amazing time in American history, not only because we were moving uh, towards what ultimately would be the, the first uh, African-American president, but because it was such... Uh, a, a, a spirited campaign, especially around the time of the selection of the vice presidential candidates. And people should understand that at that most critical time in the McCain campaign, they were looking for the folks that could help build and sustain uh, a campaign infrastructure that was going to go the distance. And in doing that, they tapped you, Jason Recker, to come join that campaign. For someone like you, Jason, coming from the White House and leaving the role that you had established uh, in in the White House to to go to a campaign that had a you know the odds were against uh, against it uh, from the summer on. Um, so, at what point do you say does the campaign come to a person like you with the White House experience, the White House chops at making these uh, these things flow right, and say we want you to come on? Do you know who your principal is going to be before before you're sort of signed on? 
You know, it really depends. I think in, in 08, it was such a, uh, the selection was such a, 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 you know, phenomenon that it had been staffed for somebody who was a little bit more uh, staid and a little bit more uh, standard. And the, the the phenomenon that surrounded the, the selection, you know, kind of they had to reshape the team. And uh, a lot of folks, uh, Chris Edwards, Doug McMarlin, myself, were, were asked to, to come on and, and join. And, you know, I think that, that in, in so retrospect. So you joined after Governor Edwards, Governor Palin was tapped. Exactly. Correct. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, I think in retrospect, you know, a lesson that I learned, um, you know, from the experience dealing with the campaign headquarters, not the candidates, uh, you know, themselves, is that if if you're going to go into something like that, it's really important to make sure that they are going to listen to the advice that you bring, and they're not just going to bring you on because of your resume. Uh, that, that's a lesson that that, that I learned, um, and and, and it, it to me, it's a it's a very valuable lesson for all campaigns, uh, and it will show, and I'm sure Josh, as, as you saw in, in your experience too, that the campaign headquarters that listen to the people that are on the roads with the candidates and know what's going on in these communities usually are the ones that are most successful. You know, you can report back and say the enthusiasm in this state is absolutely dead. It was a small crowd. There's no enthusiasm whatsoever. Or we really need to pump some resources in here. Or this state's great. We've gotten huge crowds, and the, the reaction has been very positive. As we're driving down the road, we see bumper stickers, lawn signs. We're, we're good to go here, you know. People who sit back and, and look at numbers and, and polls and things like that are valuable in any campaign, but the people that don't listen to the people that are on the road with the principals, I think it's to their detriment. So paint the actual picture for us in 2008. I mean, on both Democratic and Republican sides, we should tell our listeners that people who have come a long way through campaigns and have run states and have run prime delegate counting operations, you know, they're looking for a general election uh, responsibility, and the campaign manager will say, I've got the perfect responsibility for you. We are going to announce a vice presidential candidate, and you will be the, that candidate's campaign manager. Right. Uh, and and as you alluded to, a structure was put in place from the McCain campaign, but it might have not fit Governor Palin perfectly. So there you are flying into wherever city you rendezvoused with her, with Todd, with the family. And what did you see and what did you have to do to sort of set things on track for at least as successful a possible as run as you could through Election Day? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if, if I was advising somebody who was on a short list for, uh, you know, becoming a, a vice president in the future, I mean, the ability to have some of your own people who know you, who know your rhythm, who know your style, you know, with you is, is really important. At staffing a plane for a, a presidential, vice presidential, or any level candidate, um, with experts in the field, quote unquote, and you know the top consultants, the top strategists, etc. I think we've seen is not necessarily a winning scenario. So, uh, putting people in who are uh, loyal, putting people in who understand the principles, rhythm, and scenarios, and and abilities, and and you know ways of communicating, and what's at their heart is something that will help that that campaign and that candidate shine, as opposed to putting in the highest paid, you know, top rated people who made the you know. 50 under 50 in Politico list, um, staffing it with all those folks, I think, is really to a detriment of a campaign. And that would be something in the future, uh, I would hope, that, that especially our party has learned. There is a, uh, a new movie that's coming out, and we finally got the trailer released by HBO. It's, it's a story that you will know all too well and probably could set us straight on a number of things. Let's get people to listen to Game Change, the about-to-be-released HBO special about some of what Jason Recker lived through during the 2008 campaign. We need to create a dynamic moment in this campaign. We're dead. 
If you are going to seriously consider the governor of Alaska, you have to call her now. This is Sarah. American woman! All right, Jason Recker, you have gotten to know uh, Governor Palin quite well. You were out there a part of this team, but it's also given you some insight into uh, Mark Halpern, John Heilman, and the folks who travel on the plane and are a part of this traveling roadshow of reporters uh, who are out there on the on the campaign trail every day. What's your take on the veracity of this storytelling, but moreover, whether or not there are lessons learned uh, from the 08 campaign about how you deal with press? Well, you know, a couple things, Adam, in your lead up, you said it's a story I know all too well and something I lived through. Uh, the 2008 campaign it is something I know well and live through. The Game Change movie, based on that trailer, is something that's completely foreign to me. Okay. Um, you know, seeing that, that trailer is really, uh, you know, disturbing, and uh, I think it's it's uh, a work of a few select of those high-paid consultants and top strategists I mentioned earlier who are doing their best to, to regain some reputation they may have lost in losing the 2008 campaign. So, uh, you know, and I think, too, you need to look at the, the, the money of the people who directed and produced that movie, uh, you know, based on that, HBO stands for helping Barack Obama. But um, I think that there, there's so many lessons that, that you know, can be learned. And, and I think it's something you touched on earlier in building your team and talking about trust and, and loyalty uh, are factors that are, that are so important in, in, in forming a presidential or any, any level campaign effort. And you have to realize that if you want to be successful, I think you need to staff yourself with people who are going to be loyal, who are going to be dedicated to you, and not necessarily the, the top people in the field. Do you keep everybody on the press plane? I mean, right now, the press is, like, attached by an umbilical cord. They go everywhere with the candidate. Yeah. In, in in the age of social media, is this the way you continue to run a campaign, in your opinion? I mean, I may be going rogue a little bit here, but I, I if I was on a campaign right now, I would get a small plane, a streamlined motorcade, and dump the press off. I think that there's uh, so much more harm uh, you know, in, in having them there, and, and, you know, you can feed the beast, but you can't tame it. Um, a lot of these folks are, are embeds that are just out of college, have not been part of a campaign before. They're they're looking to, to make their name and, and, you know, be the next uh, Halpern and, and Heilemann-type uh, folks for, for whatever their, their campaign or candidate that they are covering. And I, I think the technology has changed so much, too. I mean, I, I was on the One Nation tour this summer, and we went to have breakfast with a, with a member of Congress and uh, a, a two-person NBC embed crew, uh, followed us out of the hotel, went to a breakfast place in the middle of New Hampshire, and uh, they pulled out a backpack, plugged the camera into it, and I went over to talk to them, and they said, quiet, we're live on MSNBC. Gone are the days of the you know, massive satellite trucks and cable runs and power cords and everything like that. This is so adapt that two people who are not necessarily technicians can plug a can- camera into a backpack and stream live directly into everybody's home from there. So, uh, you know, campaigns would be smart to utilize, I think, that technology on their own. They can control their own message, and they don't necessarily need to go through the, the filter of the media. I watched, you know, Romney try to do some damage control yesterday, and it's you can't hear him. You can't. The visuals are terrible. There's no lighting on the plane, and he's trying to get his message out. But overshadowed by that is the clear, crisp message that was, in his mind, misconstrued from an interview earlier that day. So speak in your own, you know, through your own filter, and uh, that would be my advice to the campaign these days. I found the tour uh, that you worked on last summer fascinating uh, because for, for those very reasons, Jason, that you had um, a wonderful backdrop in the bus. Um, you had uh, a, a, 
a compelling figure who was going to attract lenses wherever those lenses were coming from, whether they were network supplied or local or just personal, that then would be fed into social media. Yeah. And, uh, and you conspicuously did not conform to the old rules of the road, which would be that the, the press office puts out the schedule and provides all the details about where and when to meet and what type of press facilities will be offered. And I, there was a lot of sort of collective anguish by the press corps that, oh my God, Governor Palin is not providing the typical press advance information that we've got to work the, for a living we now. Need. Right. And, and it came down to one guy, a guy that Adam and I had on the show uh, early on, and my, my, my buddy Mark Leibovich, to almost call the press on, don't be so freaking lazy. Yeah, if, no, you wanna follow, if you want to yeah. follow a, a candidate or a person of public interest, get off your butts, get in your car, get yeah. your camera, and do your story. No, exactly right. And it's funny, there, there was so much anguish leading up to it. And the reporters that followed us on the, on the tour, um, you know, really were reporters. They were people that did their homework, that found out where we were going. They, they you know, found out ways to follow us. And, and in the end of it, 95% of them said it was the best experience they'd have, you know, trailing a politician because they didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't have to listen to the same stump speech three or four times over. And we were able to, instead of putting the spotlight on an individual, we were able to spotlight so many great things about our country by doing that tour and by really keeping the press press interested. And it was, uh, I think, a, a, you know, a great way to... to you know, look at running campaigns. It was, you know, of course there's people that are upset about it because they weren't spoon-fed the information and they had to work and, you know, people had to, to you know, suffer a few hardships here and there. But in the end of the day, the reporters that were with us said it was the, the best they had, and they really used those journalistic and investigative skills that they, they get their degree in. Jason Recker, I'll tell you what, this is what I hoped for, uh, because the insight you're talking about, especially as regards uh, this week, the issue with Mitt Romney, another on-the-stump debacle, what did Jason point out? You, Everybody heard what he had to say when he muffed it. Or, or, or maybe he didn't, and we can talk more about that later in this show here on Polyoptics. But when they were left to their own devices to try and uh, make a statement about it, they had nowhere to go. They had no good audio, no good sound, no good lighting. And uh, it, it, it may just be that the insights that you have formed from both sides of all of this, campaigning, working at the presidential level, in your, your, your efforts uh, since you've left the White House, are proving that there may just be a paradigm shift that others are going to recognize in presidential politics. Jason Recker, North Star Strategies, thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Josh. It was a pleasure. In the making, Sirius XM 124. Adam Belmar, it is Super Bowl weekend. Tomorrow is the big game, Super Bowl in Indianapolis, my hometown, New England Patriots against the New York Giants. Uh, and unfortunately, we are not going to be there, but we are joined by someone who is in Indianapolis I right now. I am so pumped, both for the game and the fact that our next guest is coming to us from the site of the Super Bowl. 
You know, we don't usually divert off of politics at Polyoptics, but we are so focused on brand and image and how you elevate that brand. And when we find a crossover person, someone who's familiar both with the world of politics and who has uh, jumped into a different world, this being the National Football League, we go right for him. Absolutely. Uh, and without any further ado... Jeff Berman, uh, old friend, uh, began his career as a public defender in Washington, D.C., grew up in Washington, D.C., then went to work in the office of New York Senator Charles Schumer, then made his way to uh, the to Los Angeles, California, uh, several years at MySpace, back when it was fighting neck and neck against this uh, surging new phenomenon called Facebook, and now head of digital at the National Football League. Jeff, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Jeff, paint a picture for us about what NFL Digital has, the assets that it has on the ground in Indianapolis, and what you're going to be doing between sort of the, the ending days of, the, of the, the run-up week through Saturday, today, and then tomorrow for the game itself. Uh, so we, we're running live programming on NFL.com all week. Uh, we're set up in the media center here along with the NFL Network and everyone else, interviewing everyone from Tim Tebow to Cam Newton to Madonna uh, and talking about the game and everything around the game. Um, so from a content perspective, it's an incredibly rich experience on NFL.com and SuperBowl.com, which, which we manage as well. Uh, at the same time, we've got some really fun initiatives going on the mobile front. Uh, for the first time, we're launching a commemorative Super Bowl app on tablets. So uh, it'll be uh, print content, video content, photos from the season, from the week running up to the Super Bowl, and then immediately after the game, we'll start pushing in extended highlights packages from the game, trophy presentation, etc., uh, to sit on the digital bookshelf as, as the ultimate NFL keepsake from Super Bowl 46. Uh, and then we're also launching a new fantasy game, and it's the first time that the NFL is using a Super Bowl ad to launch a new digital product. That's a so, lot of uh, uh, revenue that, that's being put toward that uh, building the fan base, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's it, it, the, the, the avidity of the fans is off the charts. The passion is off the charts, and uh, the, the fans aren't just asking for, but they're demanding more ways to to enjoy the game and and the games around the game. And so we aim to please. I'll tell you what. We just finished an interview with uh, another polyoptics uh, practitioner, somebody who has uh, been involved uh, at, at the White House in advance and in the 08 campaign. And one of his insights was, look, the way things are today, you are much better off creating this content and getting your message out yourself, which just reminds me as we as we talk about what you're doing uh, and the NFL, uh, uh, the campaign that's been run over the course of the last year, if you want the NFL, go to the NFL. And the NFL, in a digital way, is out there like none other. Now, look, I mean, there are unparalleled assets with which we're working. 19 of the top 20 shows on television, if not all 20 this year, are going to be NFL games. Uh, the, the engagement online and on mobile uh, is is growing double to triple digits year after year, uh, and and again, it's just it goes to it goes to how much the fans love the game and, and how much they want to consume around it, and it gives us more and more opportunities to engage them on deeper and deeper levels. We, we we've talked before about uh, the uh, the advent of social media and digital communications in political campaigns, and we've we've even talked to experts who are talking about the advent of mobile technology uh, in in the 2012 race. But 
it is so much faster on the uptake when it comes to sports and from fantasy football to the digital assets and the content that uh, NFL is providing on all of these different mobile uh, platforms. It, it's really a best practices across branding and business and it, probably even for politics. You, you have to fish where the fish are, right? And, and ultimately, you look at the penetration of mobile devices and tablet devices in this country, and the, the growth is, is absolutely astounding. And so, you know, if you've got to work on Sunday uh, and, and you're only going to have your phone with you or your tablet with you, we want you to be able to watch the game. And so you can watch the game on NFL Mobile on Verizon. You can watch the game streamed, uh, streamed by NBC, and we're streaming on NFL.com as well. Um, we, we, we want you to have the experience where, wherever you happen to be. And it's an on-demand world. And I think the best brands out there are recognizing it, the best, the best properties out there are recognizing it, and they're serving their, their fans and customers accordingly. So 6.30 p.m. rolls around uh, on Sunday, kickoff time. And, Jeff, I was out in Los Angeles a few weeks ago watching the AFC Championship with you on your sofa, looking at your very large TV screen, and I said, what more do I need? And yet, if I had a, a tablet on my lap, what could I get from NFL.com to augment the viewing experience of what I'm seeing on screen? Yeah, I mean, that second screen experience is, is huge, and the ability to deliver stats, uh, record-breaking, record-breaking moments, milestones, et cetera, in real time uh, to, in the regular season, track your fantasy, and the postseason, track your postseason fantasy, which we do as well, um, and, and at the same time to be following your favorite commentators on, on uh, a Twitter aggregator, which we have on NFL.com as well. Um, again, it's exactly what the fans are doing. This is the consumer behavior, and so we're providing more and more ways for them to engage on that second, in many cases, third screen while they're watching the game on the primary screen. We're talking to Jeff Berman, uh, general manager of uh, digital media at the National Football League. He's out there in Indianapolis at the site of the Super Bowl this weekend. Of course, you can find it here on uh, Sirius XM, and, and you can find it on TV. But more importantly, it's the second screen experience that we're talking about, the digital content that is making uh, this game so much more interesting and dynamic for people. Uh, Jeff, take us back for a second. Your experience in Washington, D.C. and uh, with Senator Schumer and working on the Hill, it's it's no secret that the Obama administration has sort of sought a second screen experience for things like the State of the Union address, trying to adopt some of the added value uh, techniques that you're pioneering and really pushing forward at the NFL. Is there... Does it take more time for people to be used to doing this in in a sports arena before it becomes the kind of real added value in the political arena? In your in your opinion, I don't think so. And I think you're seeing more and more the the campaigns and the campaign committees being smart about how to do this. I mean, it's not just real time fact checking during debates and pushing that out uh, across the social media landscape, but it's creating very creative hashtags that can become trending items on trending topics on Twitter and can can immediately spin the zeitgeist. And I think I think that the, the $10,000 bet proposition from uh, Governor Romney in the Iowa debate is a good example of that. When he squared off with, with Governor Perry on that, uh, you know, the folks whose interest it was to, to push that out there did so incredibly effectively and really, really pushed that narrative much longer in social media than it otherwise would have existed. 
it's there. You just you just have to be thinking about it nonstop. And you know, for me personally, actually, the the, the training with Senator Schumer is invaluable because he's constantly looking to to solve problems which are not obvious answers, and he doesn't want to wait weeks and months to to figure it out. He wants it now, and and that's exactly what the digital world demands. So four years ago, Jeff, uh, when. Senator Obama was about to announce his VP candidate, there was, uh, I mean, almost a watershed moment where people could uh, register their phones and get a, a a text about who the VP candidate would be. It was eventually Joe Biden. Was Did that have sort of shockwaves across sort of the, uh, the corporate entertainment and sports cultures about how you because there was sort of that one bit of information that everybody wanted, everyone wanted in real time, and everyone wanted around the media filter. Is that are, are, is that what's sort of manifested in things like that you're doing now, like the perfect challenge? I think there, there, there are milestone markers along the way, and that was certainly one of them. And, um, you know, you're seeing it this year with, with the Super Bowl ads. You're seeing uh, really for the first time, uh, mass release of Super Bowl ads in advance of the Super Bowl, with a goal of of getting these uh, getting the buzz going around them. Can I tell uh, you this? Sunday, this blew me away because I used to be in another life. While you were up on the hill, I was at at Good Morning America, and we always, you know, tried to do that uh, segment about the ads, and it was always the kind of thing you had to do the day after the Super Bowl. And last night, I somehow stumbled upon it. And I'm like. Did I just discover this? Am I the only one who knows that all these ads are out now? Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and 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 the 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 ones that are really catching the public's attention are are already going viral. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to get three bites at the apple. You get your shot in the pre-Super Bowl window, and you got to figure out the timing to make it right. Uh, you get your shot in the game, where obviously you're reaching you know well north of 100 million people, just mind-blowing number. And then you get your shot in the couple days after the game with with the Today Show and Good Morning America, and with and with the USA Today ad meter and other other places where this will resonate. Uh, and and, and the best of those ads will will live on for months and months. I mean, the the E Trade baby's coming back again this year. I love that uh, E Trade baby. It's, just, it's brilliant. And so, uh, not to be a spoiler alert, but let's hear one of those ads and and have a little chat about it after that. He bought it. How can I handle work on a day like today? One of the worst performances of my career, and he never doubted it for a second. Hi, right, can I get my CRV brought up, please? I've got a lot to do today. Roderick. Oh. Roderick. You have excellent taste in automobiles. Oh my God, that just takes me back. This is Matthew Broderick. For in those an of ad a certain the age. CRV, the Honda CRV. I mean, and Jeff is so right. I mean, this has now been occupying the buzz for maybe the last 72 hours or so. And, and those of us who are of a certain age who remember Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller's Day Off probably conforming very closely to a certain demographic that is uh, potentially buyers of a CRV for their kids now. Jeff, how are you working with your sponsors, your partners to, to make this a richer experience more than just that 30 seconds on screen? Well, we'll certainly help push the ads on NFL.com and, and on our mobile properties as well. Um, I just I just think that the strategies, as as people are being more and more open to the experimentation, are fascinating. You're seeing some companies, um, you know, uh, Bud Light, Pepsi, uh, waiting longer to release their ads. Obviously, there are others that are going out early, and it's it's going to be fascinating to see how how 
how the return is is uh, is judged and how it grows based on the different strategies. Um, and and that's just the amazing thing is you didn't you didn't have the ability to experiment five or six years ago. I mean, you, when you think about this landscape, Facebook's like a six year old company. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's there's a hundred billion dollar potential uh, valuation on the table after this IPO. Um, I mean, YouTube is is about the same age. So so we we are in such the early days, and and the, the pace of the innovation is off the charts. So um, we're, we're we're in a very exciting position, not only with the reach of the Super Bowl, but with the extended that our digital platforms have to augment, and it's a, it's a privileged position to be in, for sure. All right, no politics. Just tell me straight out, what's the coolest thing or coolest person you've seen or run into while you've been out there in Indianapolis this week? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know where to begin. Uh, I think probably the cool, I'll say the coolest thing today was Tim Tebow and Cam Newton meeting on the set of the NFL Network uh, as, as they were they were passing off uh, from one interview to another. And I thought the universe was about to explode with those two guys coming together. Um, this season, uh, as, as the Tebow phenomenon, phenomenon grew, uh, you, you just cannot believe the, the level of engagement around that guy. And, and, and Cam Newton was not far behind. So I would say that was, that was probably the top moment so far this week. But uh, my guess is it'll, it'll be topped on Sunday. And, and so after the Super Bowl is played, Jeff, uh, you know, obviously things go quiet for the NFL, you'd think, until uh, the draft and the training camp. But, but really, what I think the things that you've been saying, both in print and just uh, off the side in our conversations, are that for NFL Digital, it really is going, it, it's a 365-day-a-year job because the, the brand continues and it starts to renew for next season the day after the Lombardi Trophy, trophy is awarded, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, the, the combine is just a few weeks after, and, and obviously that's where the top college players in the country are coming to show their skills and uh, be evaluated by the scouts for the draft. The draft is not far behind that. We've got a schedule release, which is a real tentpole in the offseason for us, and before you know it, it's training camp. But on top of that, we're putting out more, for example, mobile games in the marketplace. We just launched a flick kicker game. We have a flick quarterback game. Uh, and, and you wouldn't believe the uptake of these games and the engagement with them. Um, it's, it's incredibly inexpensive, high-value entertainment. And, uh, and so we'll be providing more and more of that and uh, very much looking to run a 365-day-a-year business. I always think about, uh, the, from the political end of things with the Super Bowl, how involved uh, or what an opportunity it can be for the President of the United States. Josh, I'm thinking back to, the, to President Clinton. Did you all do anything interesting around the Super Bowl? Was there, was there something that, that, that you were involved in from a, an optics perspective about the boss watching the big game? Well, you know, we had, the, as we talked about uh, with Jody Cantor a few weeks ago, who wrote about President Obama's holding his Super Bowl party watching the Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers in one of his, in his first year in office. That's sort of what we would do. The president has at the White House a family theater with probably 50 or 60 seats, plush uh, leather seats, and probably about a 130-inch screen uh, capable now of watching uh, the highest of high-def TV. And so... But back then, it was probably a, a much lower-res picture, and the president would would host a Super Bowl party, and um, you know. But we didn't 
I, I think for security reasons, we may have uh, done a live interview, but I, we never went to the game, as far as I can remember. Well, you know, Jeff I, said I, Jeff said uh, fish where the fish are, in the in the presidency, the president, especially this one, knows where the fish are, and and he's always out there getting himself involved and being in a live interview around the around the Super Bowl, and it, it's hard to to figure that there's any downside to that. It seems to me one of the takeaways from from Jody's book, which is a terrific read, is that this president is a huge fan of the game, and he wants to watch the game, um, which which maybe cuts back on some of those opportunities. That's There's right. certainly a lot he can do around the game, but uh, my guess is he's going to be hunkered down and, and not... not uh, His not wife's going to be feeding him things that I wouldn't want to eat, though. <laughs> Jeff, you are anchored in Los Angeles uh, with wife and family, uh, great house, and now building NFL Digital, but you began in Chevy Chase, uh, Maryland, spent your life, your career in D.C., and made this transition. Do you ever look back and say, I wish I was involved in government and politics more and didn't make the switch? And how did you sort of come to this rationalization that there's more to life than just what's happening inside the Beltway? Look, I'm I'm incredibly grateful, and I've been very blessed to have jobs that I've loved and from which I've learned a ton and where I've been able to contribute in different ways. And, you know, obviously the jobs are very different. I moved to L.A. to be with, with my wife, who's in television and film industry. Um, I, I just think that, that, first of all, so many of the skills are transferable, and second of all, uh, you know, what, what we do every day brings an enormous amount of joy to people's lives. Um, you, just, you just think about the numbers for a moment, and it blows your mind. Uh, you know, the millions of people playing fantasy, the tens of millions of people watching football every weekend, the hundred-plus million who are going to be watching in this country alone on Sunday – um, so, you know, look, it's, it's a journey, and I've been, I've been very fortunate so far uh, to have these jobs that I've loved, and uh, hopefully that'll, that'll keep going forward. You know, I don't want to miss an opportunity to make a uh, Chuck Schumer joke. So here it goes. They say in Washington one of the most dangerous places to be is between Chuck Schumer and a television camera. Um, and you moved from uh, helping him execute, among other things, a lot of policy and being out there and being a leader to being uh, at a place where everybody is running to you and looking to, to understand uh, more about what's going on and at the same time having a purview in your, in your digital uh, job of maintaining the brands of all of these different teams across the NFL. Uh, I just got to wish you luck because we're enjoying watching what you all are doing over there at the NFL, Jeff. Oh, thanks, Adam. It's great stuff, and uh, we're having a blast doing it, and hopefully the fans uh, love, love the stuff we're putting out in the market and uh, have more and more fun with the game and the game around the game. I just hope that I can be the winner of the $1 million for the perfect challenge, but I don't think my odds are very good, are they, Jeff? Uh, you know what, Josh? You're a smart guy. You love the game, and you'll probably put Gronkowski at tight end every week, which uh, which probably would not be a bad move. So it's, uh, it's NFL.com slash perfect. You can go pre-register today. I encourage you to do so, and can't wait to play the game with you next year. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Great to have you. Thanks, guys. Not red, not blue. Red, white, and blue. Red, white, and blue. POTUS. All right, we're going to bring forward a new segment of polyoptics here on POTUS. We're calling this On the Stump, Josh. That's right, Adam. You know, 
it would be it would be great if we were on TV instead of on Sirius XM Radio, where we could actually show these these uh, moments on the stump and talk about visuals in addition to the sound. But uh, Catherine Caperton, our our exemplary executive producer, has is every week going to find some great stuff for us to talk about. So essentially, we can't spend, nor do we want to spend, every week chasing the uh, bouncing ball of the political campaigns. We're in for a long haul, folks. Okay, two hundred and. 70 some odd days left until the election. And as but, Newt Gingrich's signage says, 46 states to go. That's right. Newt is relentless. He's going to go the distance. But every week we are going to focus in on one of the most interesting, one of the best, or in this case, one of the most deplorable elements of political rhetoric and communication and, and just a bad polyoptics moment for Mitt Romney. This came during an interview with Soledad O'Brien of CNN. Let's have a listen. I'm in this race because I care about Americans. I'm not concerned about the very poor. We have a safety net there. If it needs a repair, I'll fix it. I'm not concerned about the very rich. They're doing just fine. I'm concerned about the very heart of America, the, the 90, 95% of Americans who right now are struggling, and I'll continue to take that message across the nation. What, 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 what? What did he say, Josh? He's not concerned with the very poor. Okay, we just heard him in context, but I can't believe he said that. Well, yeah. I mean, look, Adam, we talked last week with Rich Galen, and one, and I think Rich, uh, who worked for a long time with Newt Gingrich uh, when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, and is now very much a Romney supporter, and we asked him, you know, is this is this leading candidate, the likely nominee of the Republican Party, quick and nimble enough with a phrase to go the distance when the camera is always on and the microphones are always hot and this shows that you know he he his brain does not fire the right synapse along with his lips no no doubt i mean this is the same candidate who told us that corporations are people that he likes to fire people and he doesn't care about the very poor now you can go back and you can uh, put all of those statements in context and you can calm yourself down and rub the feathers in the right direction but listen when it comes to polyoptics in a presidential campaign these singular sound bites these elements which this candidate clearly said will be compiled and will create a horrible polyoptics impression both on the web and potentially on television and of that I am positive Josh to be fair and we played the extended clip I think the exact quote is I don't I'm not concerned about the very poor they have a safety net and uh, if it needs fixing I'll fix it but this is wrong nine ways to Sunday if if that's all he has to offer (laughs) in an interview with Soledad O'Brien and he doesn't have that approachable uh, humor, the uh, shares my values, is is like me. I mean, that kind of thing will always a- attract the interest of everyone following him. So, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where a, a more humorous, more relaxed Mitt Romney almost could have slid through that a lot easier than he did. I was talking to John Fury, who, you know, is often heard here on POTUS with the Fury Theory, and uh, he said, look, I think Mitt may well win the presidency despite himself, but I got to tell you what, if I'm at the White House, whether I'm tasked with the re-election campaign or not, and I hear my potential adversary taking care of shooting himself in the foot and we don't even need to go pound on him that hard this week because these unforced errors continually come up 
you've just got to believe that uh, there's a God out there. I mean, it, look, that's why teleprompters were created. Um, and it's unfortunate, too, but I think the Obama campaign recognized this in 2008. It's why in the summer uh, you'll probably see those two glass paddles in front of both nominees at all times so they can be carefully scripted so that the, all these phrases can be fully vetted and the opportunities whether they are weekend interview shows or moment or early morning hits like that conversation with Soledad O'Brien will become fewer and fewer because the risks are so high that the candidate will gaff. Well, that is the on the stump segment of Polyoptics here on POTUS Sirius XM 124. Josh King and Adam Belmar pulling back the curtain every week taking a look at what drives the images and headlines. We will be back with you next week only on POTUS. States. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.